Nobody should hear the gospel twice until everybody has had the chance to hear it once. I grew up in Chile, and missionaries were regular guests in my church and my home. And as a little girl, I remember as I listened to these testimonies and the call of God in their lives and all the loss that they were dying without Jesus, the Lord started putting a burden in my heart for missions. At an early age, about nine years old, I knew that the Lord was calling me to be a missionary. Of course, the Lord has his timing. And about 10 years later, the Lord brought a big change in my life, not only because with my family, we moved to Melbourne, Australia, to live, but also because uh, there, the Lord baptized me in the Holy Spirit, and he confirmed his confirmations in my life. It was also there several years later, in my early 30s, waiting and praying for a husband, that in a mission school in Sydney, Australia, I had the chance to meet my American husband. (laughs) (laughs) And we spent 10 weeks together doing this training. By the end of 10 weeks, we were talking about marriage, talking about God's plan. And you know the typical story? The guy from Gloucester, Virginia, goes all the way to Australia to meet his wife from Chile. So God amazes me how he works, but his plan is designed for our lives. And if we just were willing to wait for his perfect will, he'd come everything across. So advice for those young girls, um, guys that are waiting for a partner, the Lord is faithful and he brings what we need. And uh, a little bit more about ourselves is that the Lord has called us to go to Mexico uh, to work among the rich Indians. I don't know if you're aware, but in Mexico, there's close to 5 million enriched Indian groups that they have never heard about Jesus because they don't speak Spanish and the Mexican church has not reached them yet. And uh, the Lord has called us to go and raise pastors among those communities because we believe that the heartbeat of God is for the lost. And we thank you for partnering with us and blessing us with such wonderful gifts for our kids. And it's a blessing to be here. And thank you so much for the opportunity. It's our pleasure to be with you guys today and to, um, to be able to say personally, thank you for all the support that you have in the past given and all that you continue to do for us to allow us to be your hands and feet in Mexico. I think that most people don't realize that we as missionaries are an extension of you. This is a vital team that we operate in. We're maybe the forerunners or the front runners that go out to those areas, but it wouldn't be possible without you guys continuing to support us in prayer and finances so that we can do what God has called us to do. So it's a team effort. Now, Why don't you go ahead and show that slide of the sunrise, sunset. When we were in Mexico, I took this shot on the Laguna Madre on the Gulf of Mexico. And many of the areas we've worked in look a lot like this where we work on some of the beaches. I know some of you would like to have a beach ministry. I I understand that. And there's not all of us that can be missionaries to the beach. I'm just kidding. In this area, though, it's a fishing community, and this is one of the areas. And I took this picture. You can't tell in this picture whether that's a sunrise or a sunset. We had a chance to go to Benjamin Franklin's birthplace, Philadelphia, and where he lived and and take a look. And he 
And one of the things they talk about in the history of the United States there that captivated my attention was during the Continental Congress in the time where they were putting together the uh, Declaration of Independence and then the 10 years later the Constitution. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said as he sat in the Constitution Hall, he saw this uh, sun set sunrise carved into one of the backs of the chairs. And he had much time to contemplate this as they were going through all their discussions. And he said, I wasn't able to determine whether that was a sunrise or a sunset occurring on that chair. He says, thinking about our history of our country, thinking about these colonies and what they will become, I'm not sure whether we're at a point where history is calling to a close the greatness of what we have been or whether it's opening a history that will be greater than ever before. And I think that personifies so clearly the age we are in today. We have so much occurring so quickly in our earth today, it baffles me. And I love to go through the news and peruse all the information and see all that's occurring through our world today. But it's just baffling how quickly things are changing. Whether you look at natural disasters, From the earthquakes that have occurred a year ago that rocked Chile like never before uh, to the earthquake in Japan that has caused more destruction than the history of Japan has ever known. Then the tornado that even just last week was the largest in the U.S. history in correlation with the land for peace deal. That's another whole interesting story in and of itself. The economies that are shifting Some on the danger of even crumbling to where the European Union is having to bail out whole countries. Not one, but multiple countries to bail them out of debt. Where we ourselves are grappling with our national debt like never before. We find that so many things are shifting and changing and we wonder. Relevantly... Are we in a time where history is closing the greatest chapter in mankind? Or are we setting up just for the bringing in of a new era that will be the greatest in our history? Is the sun rising or the sun setting? I believe it's actually both. I believe today we're coming to a point in our history of our nation and our world where we're closing mankind's history. And we're facing things that we've never had to face before in the history of the world. Yet I believe the sun is rising because this is what we have been waiting for. This is what we have spent our lives moving towards to see the reward that God has for us. Romans 5 verse 20 tells us where sin increased. Grace increased all the more. This is extremely relevant for us because today in Mexico's history, we find the worst time that Mexico has ever seen. Since 2007, four years, 35,000 people have died to the cartel wars. 15,000 of those alone was last year. That's over a thousand a month. That's more than 30 to 40 a day in Mexico dying because of cartel violence. Mexico's never seen anything like this in its history. 
the cartels, six to seven of them, are, are battling against each other. But principally, they're battling against one new cartel that has risen up out of the Gulf cartel, the region we are have been uh, working among. And we find that that particular cartel is the most bloodthirsty, the most violent, the most irrespective of life or of God than any other in the past history of Mexico. It's a terrible time in Mexico. Yet in that time, because of the chaos that is occurring in Mexico, the churches of Mexico are filling up like never before. We are reaching a critical point. The NASA calls it a point of convergence. When they anticipate to send their space shuttles into space, they look for a window of time when all the factors and circumstances align to present a perfect opportunity for the launch of that mission. God operates on the same principle. And God initiates and allows circumstances to come and to happen so that at a critical juncture, the Greek said the kairos moment, the special perfect season in that it was ripe for something to occur. And I tell you, in Mexico today, we are at a point of convergence, a point of critical timing, a special season in Mexico like never before. It is set for God to show up. Where sin increases by natural law of what God has established, when it seems the darkest, it's the greatest opportunity for God to show up. How many of you have found in your lives a time when you're at a point where you don't know what to do? Your emotions are at the end. Your stress level is high. And you come to God in a point of seeking like never before. And it seems like that is when he really shows up the quickest. That's when he shows up the strongest. He waits for that moment when we are really at our wit's end. And he comes through. I hate for me to have to wait to that point to get to that point. But I have to honestly tell you that's what it seems like to me is that he waits for me to get to that point when he really shows up strong. Mexico is in that situation today. We've worked in Matamoros, Mexico for the last five years, since 2006. Did our language school in 2005. Since we've been there, we've been doing all kinds of different things. Fifty different teams from the United States have come to be with us, on average more than one a month, to come to be with us in that region the home region, the stomping grounds of the Gulf Cartel. Despite that, knowing that we're in the midst of the Gulf Cartel region and that they are very active all around us, not one of those 50 teams has ever feared for their safety. Not once has any of them ever been taken or threatened. Not once has any of them ever been stolen from, aside from a friendly bribe from a police officer. We've done crusades. Evangelism, we've done children's vacation Bible schools. We've done medical clinics. We've done constructions, building churches, over 20 different churches, two Bible schools. Had the wonderful opportunity of just working with pastors, both on the U.S. side coming to be with us and the Mexican pastors who we facilitate. We've even cut hair and painted fingernails. Because it's all about opening someone's heart to hear the message of truth. 
to show them that we care so that they can hear the message of why we care. Rather than just tell you about what we've done, you saw some of the villages that we had an opportunity to work in, some of those different footages. One particular place is a fishing island that's located in that Laguna Madre. There's no electricity. There's no running water. On that island, there was a man named the Stutterer because he had a speech impediment. The man was a very immoral man. There were no police force and no military force that came into that region. And he was uh, so influential despite his immorality. He controlled that island and the things that went on in it. The island was much like what you might have seen in Pirates of the Caribbean. Not with all the makeup and stuff like that. But the situation in that there was no one who really could lay down the law of the land except those that held the power through their own particular influence. And this man used it to his advantage greatly. The stutterer controlled what went on the island. And when Pastor Lionel and his wife, Pastor Esther, if you would bring that photo up, came on to this island, the pastor of the church is actually the woman, Pastor Esther. And Brother Lionel has a call upon his life in a support role. He loves being able to maintain the church and play the praise and worship. And they both do it as a team effort. It's amazing to see how the Holy Spirit uses that. God called them to go to this island, the island of the stutterer, to seek out any opportunities that they could to share the hope, the message of the gospel, the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. Where better in a place where darkness reigns so well? So when they came into this community, into this place of darkness, the island of the stutterer, they began to influence the society and the culture that they became a part of. Well, you have to understand that the stutterer was not the one really calling the shots. But it's a spiritual battle because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That being the case, when the spiritual forces of darkness knew that Esther and Lionel were coming into that community, they were greatly offended and went to the stutterer and had him issue a decree to Lionel and Esther that their lives were in danger if they continued to minister on that island. He was going to have them killed. He had made many of these threats before, not just to them but others, and had fulfilled those threats. It was well known. And so when Esther and Lionel were faced with the decision of whether they would back up and try and find a different place of ministry or decide that God had indeed called them to the island of the stutterer, they had to make a decision. Was what they believed in worth any cost and any sacrifice? Were they willing to believe that God was going to take care of them and had called them for a specific purpose or were they going to back up and take what they had believed and leave it behind for something easier? Lionel and Esther decided that God had called them and what he had called them to do was worth it. And that he would fulfill the call in their lives no matter what, whatever it took. So one day they found themselves kidnapped in a fishing boat in which one of the men working for the stutterer had absconded them and was taking them across the lagoon to an uninhabited island. He informed the family, Lionel, Esther, and their two children, 
that he was going to rape the two ladies and then kill all four of them and bury them on an an uninhabited island and no one would ever know what happened to them. But where sin increased, the grace of God increased all the more. Just like David, the three men in the fiery furnace, Daniel, Hezekiah, so many of the men of God that we know of in the Bible. As Lionel and Esther, against their will, were being transported across the lagoon, the motor of the fishing boat puttered to a stop. Now, Lionel loves his guitar because it's an instrument and a tool for him to declare the glory of God through song. So he takes it with him everywhere. And it just so happened on this particular day, he had his guitar as well. He had taken it and put it in the bow of the boat while they were being taken to the other island. It was time for the sun to be setting. And on Lagoon, things were fairly calm. There was another man on the other side that saw the silhouette of the boat and people in it. He couldn't tell who was in it. It's normal for fishermen to be out on the lagoon. But what he noticed was the neck of the guitar sticking out of the bow of the boat. And he knew immediately that his pastor was in that boat. And that boat wasn't going anywhere on the water. So he quickly turned his fishing boat and drove up to that boat and said, Pastor... Are you guys all right? Are you okay? What's going on? And Pastor Estead and her husband Leonel said, Well, it seems this gentleman here has run out of gas. If you would be willing to give him some gas, we'll hop in your boat and you can take us back to the island where we can continue so much of the ministry we've still got to do. And that's the way it ended. But the legacy continues. Because the island is no longer called the island of the stutterer. Because of the interaction of Lionel and Esther with that community and the people and all the acts of love they continue to do, they have changed the name. Not Esther and Lionel, the people of that region have changed the name. The stutterer no longer exists. I have no idea where he is. I couldn't tell you where he is or what he's doing. But the island now is called the island of love. Because where sin has increased, the grace of God increases all the more. God's called us now to leave this region where we've been working with these fine pastors and people because there's a different need that He's called us to look towards. In Veracruz, Mexico, south of this region, down the Gulf, we have found there's a mountain city called Jalapa, a capital of the state of Veracruz. And around that capital has gathered many communities of Indians. But let me back up and give you a few statistics. In Mexico, there's 110 million people, the population of Mexico. It's estimated that half of those are under 16 years old. Hispanics love family, and they love big families. Because of that, the population of Mexico is growing very quickly. In the population of 110 million, there exists a group of people, 10 million of whom have ancestry directly from the Indians that have occurred before the Spanish conquistadors came in to Mexico to establish Spanish colonies. And they continue to hold themselves separate from the Hispanic culture. So out of 10 million Indians that still speak their native first language, their Indian dialects, 60 different Indian languages, 300 different dialects, it has presented a major barrier 
to the Hispanic evangelical church reaching those communities. Because of that, it's estimated out of those 10 million indigenous Indians, 5 million of them have yet to hear what Jesus has done for them. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sandra said, nobody should hear the gospel twice until everybody has had the chance to hear it once. God's called us to do something about this issue. And we take it upon ourselves to follow what God has called us to do, to go and reach as many as He will allow of those five million unreached Indians. Now, He's given us a strategy to do that. We believe very clearly in what He's called us to do in a three-phase, three-pronged move. We want to, one, train pastors from the indigenous communities to raise up church plants within those communities. A church for the Indians, by the Indians, and of the Indians, where they will minister to their own people. And we will facilitate them doing that by going with them, equipping them, providing for them the things that we can to make it easier for them to plant those churches as a network. We believe God's called us to support those pastors, not financially. We don't want to cripple the church. That's a whole other discussion that I can have with you about how to build a successful church. But we found that in building a successful church, the first and best way to cripple a church is to fund that pastor from an outside source. But we believe that in a way we've got to provide something for them so that they can provide for their families in communities where there's no businesses and no industries. So to do that, we've got to set them up with micro-businesses, micro-industries, set them up with some way of providing for their families. One of the ways we want to do that is called aquaculture, in which we take a fish tank that is stocked with fish, and we take that water from those fish tanks, 100 gallons or so, and we push it into gravel beds where we're raising fruits and vegetables. And then once the water has moved through the roots and the gravel, it returns back to the fish tank filtered and clean, ready for the fish again. Something that can be done on a household level or it's something that can be done in a community level. We're looking at different things like biogas and solar energy. What we might consider in our society green. To me, I'm not much of a greenie. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a tree hugger. I understand we live on this planet and God gave us dominion over it. But I also understand that God's got a plan to provide for us in ways that it's really easy if we'll just kind of think outside the box. And I believe that's what he's called us to do to help our pastors provide for their families in these situations. We're also looking to teach them how to build and multiply their churches using resources around them so they're not dependent on somebody else from the outside to raise up churches. We also expect to have a great deal of changing societies and cultures and ministering to the people. Not because we want to be changers of society, but because we believe God's got a better way. And we believe that when the gospel comes into a community, it doesn't just change the spirituality of the culture, but it affects every part of that culture. Susanna was a fisherman's daughter born in the town of Igarias. 
And Susanna is a married woman. She has a child and another one waited to be born. She was um, found herself in a situation. Her husband had left the region to go find work somewhere else. And she found she would try and sell cosmetics like by mail or like you would do by Avon or by uh, Shackley, the different things they do uh, in our network marketing. But that was kind of the situation she wanted to get into to help her children and help provide for her family. But what she found was she fell on hard times. And the money that she would have used to pay back the cosmetics company had to go for food for her children because otherwise they were going to go without. And as you know, a mother's heart is not to see her children go without. So she spent the money she should have sent into the cosmetics company only to find that the cosmetics company came back with a lawyer and a letter saying that she had a week to pay what she owed or she was going to be put in jail with her children. No means of providing more money. She lived in a fishing community, no running water, no electricity, no major industry except for the fishing industry which comes and goes. Well, we happen to have a team building the church there in Igadeus with Pastor Martin and his wife, Virginia. She saw the team there, and there was an idea spoken to her mind. And I know who spoke it there. But she came to Pastor Martin, and she said, Pastor Martin, here's my situation. I need help. In a week, I'll be in jail with my children if I can't find a way to pay this debt that I have no ability to pay. It reminds me of a story. Pastor Martin came to the team and said to the team, listen, we've got a situation. Is there something you can do to help? We said, well, that kind of depends. How much money are we talking? She, he said, $70. Well, we had 15 people on the team. We just took up an offering, and there it was. So we handed the money to Pastor Martin, and he gave it to her. And it was taken care of, you know, very quickly. But it made such an impact on Susanna to see the love of God in action. As she became a member of the church, she put herself under the leadership of Sister Virginia and Brother Martin and began to be discipled, taught, led. Now, in that, there's no change in the financial situation of a person just by her being discipled. But again, I tell you that when the gospel comes into a community, it raises that community like you've never seen in every aspect of the community. Pastor Martine had an idea with Sister Virginia that they would start a feeding program to feed the children of that community. So they asked us if there was something we could do. We brought in a team from Kansas City, Missouri. One of the gentlemen on the team had this great idea. He designed a bread oven that would work on firewood. He brought the designs with him. He brought the fire brick with him. Transported it across the border into Mexico. And we began building what I call a bread shed. We built a small little house in this desert area on the Laguna Madre where these folks could make their own bread to feed the children of the community. And I can tell you they were delighted. I baked the first pizzas, homemade pizzas, in that bread oven. And then that church took over feeding those children of the community and took charge of those things. You know who led that ministry? Susanna. 
God is so good in that when he brings a solution, it's not just a one-time solution. And it's not on a small scale. When God does something, he does it big. And when he shows up, he shows up big time. To this fisherman's daughter, Susanna, who had been struggling, paying her very last cent to buy food for her children, is now in charge of a feeding program that is feeding all the children of the community. Do you think her children were going without? Not hardly. The gospel is so poignant for today. It is so relevant for today in societies around the world that are seeking answers to the questions of life, not just its purpose, but how will I live? The gospel today speaks relevant, practical information. We believe that with our whole hearts. That's why we're willing to go to Mexico in a midst of time of chaos and danger and to share that love because it will bring hope to lives. The only hope that really makes a difference. We have out on our display table prayer cards that I like for each of you to take as many as you would like to remind you to pray for us in three areas. I want you to pray one that God will give us his protection. He has been faithful and I don't in any way believe he's going to do anything other than protect us in the call that he's called us to. But we continue to pray to that end that God will keep us in every area and situation that we every of land that we tread on that he will keep us safe through his divine protection. Second, we're praying for God's plan. This this call that he's placed upon us, the task that he's laid in our lap is much bigger than us. We're one small part of a great big plan. And there's no way I can accomplish the things that he's asked me to initiate. It's got to be his Holy Spirit bringing all the things into that convergence so that we can see that accomplished. So we're praying for God's plan to be evident and brought to actuation in our lives and in our ministry. Third, we're praying for God's protection, his plan. We're praying for God's provision. You guys have been faithfully giving to us on a regular basis so that we can be an extension of you in Mexico. And we need more people like that, more churches that will take on that same vision and call so that we're able to go and do what God's called us to do in Mexico. God's protection, God's plan, and God's provision for our lives. Thank you guys so much for what you do in the missions program here at Lighthouse, for your programs of ministry to this community, but also to the communities in places you may never see. That you are touching lives through what you do, through your finances and through your prayers. Thank you for your continuing support and partnership in that. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. Laurie.